All right, guys, so uh, here we are. We're back into the book of Luke. Uh, I want to talk to you this morning in particular about the key of knowledge. The key of knowledge, either the giving of the key of knowledge or the taking away of the key of knowledge. Hopefully by the end of this sermon, you'll have a better idea as to what that means and what it is and whether or not you're participating in it or how you're participating in it. But before we dive back in, first off, if you're, if you're new, welcome. We're glad that you're with us. Uh, my name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here at Restoration Church. Uh, as we uh, jump back into the book of Luke, we have been in this book since last fall, just taking it line by line, seeing what it says. And uh, we took a break for about a month, and here we are. We're back into it. And so just to give us a review, um, let's just sort of walk through and skip a rock across the book to catch us up to Luke 11. Uh, Luke is a physician that was a traveling companion of a guy by the name of Paul, the Apostle Paul, one of Jesus' apostles. And this is Luke's account of the ministry of Christ. And he gives us the reason why he writes at the very beginning in Luke 1, 1 1-4. Here's what he says. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Why? That you, that you, may have certainty regarding or concerning the things you have been taught. And so right here from the top, we learn that Christianity, friends, is interested in the truth. Interested in the truth. Christianity is not interested in this so-called blind faith. The Bible is a closely ordered account ordained of God that is full of eyewitnesses and ministers of the word compiled together so that we might have certainty about what we have been taught about Christ and his kingdom. Christ and his kingdom. And that, friend, is what the Bible's about. You ever wondered what the Bible's about? Right there, that's what the Bible's about. It's about Christ the king and his kingdom. Every story relates to those two big ideas. And that's what Luke then is about. It's about the truth of the king, Jesus, and his kingdom. And again, since last fall, we've been taking us through line by line. And so what we saw in the beginning, uh, after that passage I just read, was that Jesus was born of a virgin by the name of Mary, just as it was told in the place uh, that it was told that he would be born in. Hundreds of years before, all of it was told with, foretold with great specificity, and all of it happened just as it was prophesied. He was born in Bethlehem to that poor uh, woman by the name of Mary that was a virgin. The angels praised God when Jesus was born. Uh, the shepherds praised God. We had other people like Simeon and Anna. You remember them? They were praising God. Uh, and then before Jesus was born was Jesus' cousin. There was another little baby born by the name of John. He was Jesus' as again cousin. His ministry was to prepare the way for Jesus, to get people ready for Jesus. And what he did was offer a baptism Uh, for repentance and the forgiveness of sins, to to get them ready to be forgiven in Christ. And so that's what Jesus was doing. Jesus then shows up as an adult. He then goes to John the Baptist, Baptist, and he's a baptizer. He's baptized there to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, to do what Christians should do. And uh, he's baptized. God the Father speaks and says, this is my son of whom I have pleasure, of whom I am pleased. And after that baptism, the Spirit well, the Spirit descends upon him. Spirit leads him into the wilderness. Just as Israel of old was sent into the wilderness to be tested for 40 years, Jesus was sent into the wilderness for 40 days. And unlike Israel, though, Jesus comes out of the wilderness faithful. Faithful. He then comes out of that wilderness. He begins his ministry. He came demonstrating his authority over all things when he cast out demons and he healed the sick and he calmed storms and he raised the dead and he even forgave sin something that the people of his day knew that only god could do and yet jesus never shied away from such claims he often referred to himself as the son of man which is a title from the hebrew scriptures given to us in daniel chapter 7 revealing that jesus understood himself to be both fully god and fully man Uh, bringing heaven to earth, as we thought about last week. People saw that he spoke with authority, uh, unlike the other teachers. Uh, And we had that great kingdom edict. Do you remember back in Luke 6, the Sermon on the Plain? 
where he said, Blessed are the poor, the hungry, and those who weep, and those who are persecuted on account of his teaching, following his teaching. He says to those kinds of people that they, theirs is the kingdom of God, they will be satisfied. Though they weep now, they will laugh. And then there was these other groups of people that he spoke against. The, the people, by the way, you should think about, we're going to think about them a lot today. Woe, he said on that great kingdom edict. Woe to those who are rich, who are full now, who laugh and have everybody that likes them now. He says that they've received their consolation in the earthly, in the now. They, he says, will be hungry. They will mourn as Jesus' kingdom comes to be consummated. He then, after this, appoints 12 disciples to signal his new and better covenant than the old covenant that was given to the 12 tribes of Israel. And it was better because it was built upon him. The new covenant is built upon him and his blood that would be shed on the cross for sinners who repent, trust, treasure, and follow him. Uh, that gospel that I just told you right there was revealed to those disciples and Jesus told them, I'm going to be delivered over, I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to resurrect as the first fruits of this new kingdom that I'm bringing in. And he knows all of this is going to happen in Jerusalem. And so we saw from Luke 9.51, uh, remember there that he, Jesus set his face to then go to Jerusalem to enact this crucifixion. And so he was born to die and he was going to Jerusalem like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. That's when we get to Luke 11, that's where he's going. Along the way, these crowds of people loved listening to Jesus, watching Jesus heal people. But we saw that when things got tough, the kind of teaching that was hard, that the people didn't really like that stuff. Kind of went away from them. And in particular, these guys by the name of the Pharisees and the lawyers, they really didn't like Jesus when it came to his teaching ministry. We've met the Pharisees and the scribes or the lawyers before, but today we're going to get them up front and center. He reserves his harshest judgment for these guys, Jesus does, for these lawyers and Pharisees. So that catches us up to Luke eleven thirty-seven to 51. Here in this passage, we're going to learn about the key of knowledge, but in particular, Jesus is going to confront hypocritical Christianity, as it were. Do you like hypocritical Christianity? Well, I hope you don't. Uh, you're going to see Jesus doesn't. So, big idea this morning, don't be fooled by loveless Christianity. Don't be fooled by hypocritical Christianity. Don't be fooled by uh, fake Christianity, as it were. Take a look. Let's consider the two groups. Here's the first one, the Pharisees. Luke 11, 37. Here's what it says. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked, to, asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord, note that he's called the Lord there, and the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees! For you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. Now, who are these Pharisees exactly that he's speaking to? The Pharisees was a group of people. It's basically a group of people that in between that, in the ending of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, it was a group of people that were sort of like the Puritans. They saw the immorality around them and they decided they were going to be more moral than everybody else. And what started with a good intent turned into this pharisaical, uh, this externally obedience-driven uh, office uh, that really was heartless, that was only external and neglecting internal love and justice, as Jesus says. And Jesus says to these, this, these guys three times, whoa, let's take a look at each of them again. Woe to these dudes, verse 42, woe to you for tithing on the smallest of details, as it were. Matthew would say, and neglecting the weightier matters of the law. Again, love of God and love of neighbor, what I'm going to call love of neighbor. That's what justice is, right? The word there is actually judgment, but more clearly. So these guys, they lack a love for God 
And then they lack a love for their neighbor that they see is hurting and they're not willing to do anything about it. This reminds us of the parable of the Good Samaritan. They're like these Levites. Uh, they are like the Levites just walking on the other side, the priests that walk on the other side. That's the first woe. Lacking a love for God, lacking a love for neighbor, lacking a love for justice. Verse 44 is the second woe. You love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. So they lack love for God. They lack love for neighbor, as it were, but they don't lack love. They just love themselves. They love doing their external ministry and what it gets them and how people treat them and what people say about them and what they get to go and where they get to go and sit. They love uh, the way that people treat them because of their external religion. Third woe, woe to you for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. Ever walked over an unmarked grave? Right? You would know, right? which is Jesus's point. Woe to the Pharisees because, in essence, they are dead men walking. They're dead on the inside. People see them having life, but inside they're dead. Just like walking over a grave. Looks like they're walking, they're walking right over something that, de that death is beneath it without even knowing it. These Pharisees are dead, but they appear alive. Dead men walking. And so this notion of woe, the whole point of it is to make you go, whoa. That's the idea kind of shake you awake. Jesus says woe to them because in essence, they major in external religion to the neglect of any discernible love for God or neighbor. They use God as a way to get love from people to satisfy themselves. These guys are rudderless ships, engineless cars. They are heartless so-called Christians, we might say. They are clean on the outside, dead on the inside. In the name of the love of God, they live off of the praise of man in order to love themselves. And did you notice how all of this conversation came about? I mean, there they are at a dinner party. Jesus was asked to go to dinner. It was dinner time. He goes, he sits down, and he doesn't wash. And you'll notice, by the way, did you notice the Pharisee never said anything? But Jesus calls attention to the fact that this guy was showing some level of disdain. Maybe the, maybe the Pharisee looked at him and kind of shook his nose. Who knows what it was? But nevertheless, in some ways, Jesus kind of, in a good way, flips out. You see all those exclamation marks, marks in there? So it's important for you to know, friend, that this disdain that the Pharisee had for Jesus because he didn't wash, friend, that was an expectation that the Bible did not place on people. Jesus didn't sin, in other words which is why Jesus gets so upset. Uh, what the Pharisee did was construct, the Pharisees did, they construct this whole new set of rules on top of the Bible uh, in order to try to bind the consciences of people in addition to the Bible. Jesus says in Mark chapter 7, verse 8, also referencing in washing of hands, Jesus says that you leave the commandment of God in hold to the tradition of men. So in other words, because they're emphasizing so much things that are outside the Bible, they leave the teaching of the Bible. And did you notice there in verse 40, 42, which reminds us, did you notice in verse 42, Jesus still affirmed the need for tithing? He still, a need, still affirmed the need to do what the Bible says, as it were. He said, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others, without neglecting love of God and love of justice. Jesus desires, even demands, obedience to his word, but he hates it when it's done only as external religion for the praise of man. Void of any love for God. Void of any love for neighbor. In verse 41, he tells us that the Pharisees should give as alms those things that are within. And everything will then be clean. And of course, the things that are within, what he's saying is, is if your heart is clean, then out of it, whatever obedience comes out of it will also be clean because it would indicate that your heart is clean. You've been saved. You've been forgiven. You're doing obedience because you're motivated by love. Love for God, love for neighbor. We can think in the New Testament of things like the fruit of the Spirit. What Jesus is saying, give, to, give alms, give to the poor, give to the weak. Things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Give them those kinds of things. Give that to God. Give that to neighbor. You do that, you're clean because it's indicating God has made you clean. But as it is, Jesus is saying, 
you're dead men walking. You look like you have life, but inside you're dead. Now, before I apply this to us, I want to ask and answer a question. Why is Jesus reserving his harshest words for guys like this and the lawyers? Why? Why is he so upset about these particular things? Why does Jesus get so upset about the errors of the religious elite? Well, in some ways, right, just as James teaches us, I think about this all the time, James 3.1, that teachers will be held to a higher standard. They're teaching people the wrong way or the right way, hopefully. But the reason why Jesus gets so upset, friends, the reason why he gets so upset is because these teachers, these Pharisees and these lawyers, they're lying about God. They're lying about God. They're lying about who he is and they're lying about what he's like and what he demands from the world. They're lying, they're deceiving. These guys are the epitome of false advertising. They take the name of the one true God and like billboards that everybody sees, they do so lying about who God is and what he's like. They add to the word, void of any love for God and neighbor, and as a result, they are false advertising. I wonder if you've ever had anybody lie about you. My guess is somebody has done that at some point in your life. How did that make you feel? Terrible, right? Made you angry. So in the same way, that's what is going on here. The church of Christ should be outraged at today, pastors and priests, priests, for instance, that have abused women and children, stolen money, angrily controlling their people, and yet still keeping their position as pastors and priests. They're lying about God because they say this is what God is like externally. And yet inside they're dead. When no one is looking, their hearts are revealed. They have no love for God. They have no love for justice. They love themselves and are using God to get what they want. Such hypocrisy, friends, is a stench in the nostrils of God because it lies about him and his gospel. That's why he hates it. He hates hypocrisy like that. He especially hates it from those teachers, those leaders of the word. Let's now consider it in relation to ourselves. Many of you are familiar with that quote from Gandhi that says, uh, when he said, I like your Christ, but not your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And that, of course, is a broad and sweeping statement that is surely not true of every Christian. But nevertheless, it makes a point, doesn't it? Namely, this great quote, that we have found the enemy as it relates to the church, and he is us. He is us. There are entire tribes we might call them of christianity that are laser focused on the culture as the greatest enemy of our faith whether that be government or universities or hollywood and these are all concerns that are well grounded and true and we need to give a lot of thought to them but i what i fear though is there are people that inside the church that understand or misunderstand that our greatest danger is actually in ourselves it's not out there it's in here it's in here as it were It's people that take the name of Christ and externally are prim and proper. They're at church, we might say, every single week. They could recite huge swaths of Scripture. They give 10% of their money down to the dime. They sign the statement of beliefs, and they do all of that as a way to kind of earn favor with man for themselves, build their own identities, revealing where their real love lies. And this, friends, is what it ought not be. And so maybe to kind of make this a little bit more contemporary for us, this passage, allow me to read for you a letter from Martin Luther King Jr. Any of you are familiar with that letter from a Birmingham jail? I wonder if you knew who he was writing that letter to. He was writing that letter to white evangelical conservative pastors. That's who he was writing to. That were concerned that Martin Luther King Jr. had shown up in their city and was causing all of this ruckus about African-American rights. Listen to what he says at one portion of the letter. He says, quote, I came to Birmingham with the hope that the white religious leadership of this community would see the justice of our cause and with deep moral concern would serve as the channel through which our grievances could reach the power structure. I had hoped that each of you would understand. And yet I have watched white churchmen stand on the sideline and mount Uh, and mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. In the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I have heard many ministers say, quote, those are social issues with which the gospel has no concern. 
Friend, what Martin Luther King Jr. is pointing out is very literally, very little different than just this notion of tithing mint and rue and neglecting justice out of love for God. Because again, he's writing to pastors that probably share the statement of beliefs of us today. They are externally religious with no interest to care for unjust treatment. And this still happens even in our own day with racial and economic issues. We just saw this in relation to Ahmaud Aubrey's case. But there are other, many other matters of injustice in the world and even in our own neighborhood. And there are pastors and Christians at large that see these injustices, turn the other direction, and say the gospel has nothing to say about that. Or I think is more common, I've seen this, where pastors get all upset if you just even mention the word justice. And they get all fired up about, we just need to evangelize the lost. And what they're doing is they're saying that the gospel, again, has nothing to say about that. And that's simply not true. Simply not true. Jesus commands us to love our neighbors. Again, he gave us that great parable of the Good Samaritan. Talking about who our neighbor is, that we ought to be neighborly. But we also could look at that notion of the love of God. So I just considered sort of the notion of the lack of love for justice like these Pharisees. But we could also look today at the people that maybe, especially pastoral leaders, that have positions in some capacity that lack an internal love for God. They're externally right, religious, but lacking a love for God. We just thought about justice, but now love for God. So this is harder to spot, right? We don't know the hearts of men, but we can know them by their fruit, as Jesus tells us. And so when pastors, for instance, write books and speak on stages or lead churches, large or small, and they do so calling people to follow God in this way or that way for the purposes, as is evidenced by their lifestyle, for the purpose of building their own identities and their own personal wealth. When that's being done for those reasons, I think we see them fall right into the line of these Pharisees. They are clean on the outside, doing good religious work, but they're dead on the inside. They are full, as Jesus says, of greed and wickedness. And Jesus says, you'll look down there in the very next passage. We'll think about this next week. Luke 12, 1 to 2. Beware of pastoral leaders like this. They might get away with stuff like this in the now, but it's going to get revealed and it's going to be dealt with in the end. And so, friends, don't be fooled by fake, foolish, or false, or heartless Christianity. Don't be fooled by hypocrisy. And so since this passage is aimed at religious leaders, it's speaking of religious leaders, friends, you should be careful that I and the elders of this church are not these guys. Just going through the motions with little care for God and little care for your well-being and the well-being of our neighbors, caring little about unjust suffering. Yet at the same time, surrounding ourselves with books, books and appearances so that you guys would pay my bills or pay their bills and sort of affirm us, make us feel good about ourselves. Friends, if you find that to be true of us, then you should either fire us or leave this church. Don't follow external religion that is void of love and compassion. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, that's just a clanging symbol. Make certain your leaders are calling you to Christ because they love Him. And because they love you and they love their neighbors not because they're using you to love themselves. Now, I want to be clear. I do not believe that describes me. I do not believe that describes the elders of our church. I am not perfect. I struggle with the sins of fear. I struggle with sins of, uh, of slothfulness. My affection for the Lord and for unjust suffering is not where I want it to be. But I do believe that both I and the elders of this church are not hypocrites. We are not two-faced. We are not dead men walking. And so towards that end, might I be so bold as to join the plea of Paul and say to you, follow us as we follow Christ. I can tell you that the elders of this church, I've seen them behind the scenes. I've asked them hard questions. I see things and know things about them that most of you don't know. And these are men that love God that love their wives, that love their families, that are trying to reach the lost, that are caring for the poor and the weak around us. They are men of justice. They are men of the love of God. And so I call you to continue doing as you have done, Restoration Church, so well. I call you, I call myself, I call us to do as Hebrews 13, 7 says, remember your leaders, 
those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And so towards that end, just as the elders need to evaluate their motives, uh, our motives of our hearts in ministry, beloved, you need to do the same. Ask yourself or other brothers and sisters in your life that you know, love, and trust. Ask them to speak into your life, to evaluate lovingly your life and your doctrine, to see what's true of you, to see if you're just externally following the Lord, void of any love for God, love for neighbor, void of any interest in justice. Is, friend, Christianity all about appearances for you? If it is, friend, I want you to know your public obedience cannot pay your private disobedience. You should know that. So I hope that you see in this passage, friends, that uh, that old adage that God only cares how you live, not what you love and what you believe. I hope you see that's simply not true. God does care about how you live, but also what you love and what you believe. Jesus cares both for our obedience and whether or not that's issuing from a love for God. Jesus is supremely interested in making sure your external obedience is being fueled by a true love for the true God. And so I ask you, friend, how's that going? How's that going? 2 Peter 1, 10 and 11 says to be diligent to confirm your calling and your election. 2 Corinthians 13 says to examine yourself. How's it going? And just with a little bit of help to evaluate that, We can evaluate those two notions that Jesus called out in the Pharisees. Love for God, love for justice, love for neighbor, we might say. So first off, that evaluating the the internal love of God. So ask yourself the question, do do you love Jesus and his gospel? Do you love, that is, the person and the work of Christ? And to be clear, friend, I'm not asking you if you believe it intellectually, if those things are true. That's not the question I'm asking. Because remember, the demons believe those truths. They know those things to be true, and yet they certainly are not in Christ. What I'm asking is, do you trust those truths, and do you treasure them, and do you desire to follow them? So for instance, when conversations turn to Jesus, to the gospel, to the Bible, when conversations turn there, what do you do? Are you interested in those conversations? Or would you rather them not happen? Do you try to figure out ways to remove yourself from those conversations? Do you wish those conversations were not there? Or do you enjoy those conversations? Maybe they're a little hard for you. Maybe in that sense, you'd rather not be part of them, but you're interested in growing and being part of those kinds of things. That is to say, do you have an interest in reading, thinking, giving, serving, singing, and praying to Jesus? Do you want to obey Jesus? Do you find yourself generally obeying, generally speaking, because you trust Jesus? Maybe a a really good question would be this simple one. Do you want to love him more? If the answer is yes, take heart, friend. The Spirit of Christ is in you. It doesn't mean that you should be satisfied with where you are, but it does mean Christ is in you. He's at work in your life. But friend, if the answer is no, you should be concerned. You should be very concerned. You should reach out to a Christian friend that you love and trust and ask them, invite them to speak into your life to pray with you, to read with you, to sit with you, to listen to you, and to help you on. And as to the matters of justice, evaluating those, uh, what I'm calling love for the well-being of neighbors treated wrongly, when you read about injustices like we did this last week, about Ahmad Arbery, does your heart grieve for such things? Or did it turn proud and want to explain it away? Do you, grit, do you desire to give to the poor? It doesn't have to be money, though that would be good. But as Jesus says in verse 41, giving those things that are within. Do you desire and have you shown yourself to give to the poor, to the disenfranchised, to the needy, whoever? Do you find yourself giving them love, or joy, or peace, or patience, or kindness, or goodness, or self-control? Like that good Samaritan, do you find yourself seeing them bleeding and wanting to help? Doing something about it. Or do you just want to walk by, not engage, not enter in? Well, friend, if so, if you do find yourself doing those things, engaging those things at some capacity, 
And if so, that issues, and you know that's issuing from your love of God. Well, then, as Jesus says, for you, everything is clean. In other words, it's showing that your heart has been made clean in Christ. But if you find your interest in the things of God and the justice of your neighbor, if you find them cold, pray God would make it hot. It would be difficult to explain, friend, how serious your condition is. It's far worse than COVID-19 virus. Invite again other Christians to into your life to pray with you, to read the Bible with you, to help you on. But whatever it is, friend, don't be a hypocrite. Don't play the game of Christianity without loving the God of Christianity and the world that he has made for himself. And by the way, friends, this should be helpful for us to know that this is one reason among many others why church membership is so helpful. Nathan, really, you're going to church membership here? Yes, so helpful, right? Because what church membership does is it helps you to answer all these questions by yourself. You get other people that love Jesus too that can help you answer these questions for you. So by Christians seeking to commit to a local church and have them commit back, you're both saying, look at my life, look at my doctrine. Having pastors and members that are not trying to be tedious and trying to be judgmental in that sense. No, but trying to help each other on towards heaven and evaluating our life and doctors, see if we're in trouble. That's the beauty of church membership. Once we commit to each other like a marriage, both sides coming in, we can evaluate this and help each other on so that when we see somebody not doing well or being hypocritical, we can lovingly call them back in. But when you're on your own, not committing to a church, it's much easier for you to walk away and not have that accountability. And so that's the beauty and the love of church membership. So it's a good way. And so if you're not joined to a church, it's hard to do that right now in these days, but I would encourage you to all the more, uh, if you want to obey this passage, join a local church that loves the gospel and will love you with the gospel. But at the end of the day, I hope we see that Jesus had little patience for hypocritical Christianity because it lies about God. That is, Jesus has little patience with those that are comfortable and acting like Christians but not loving as Christians. And just a brief word for those of you that have been burnt by the church. And perhaps that's the thing that's keeping you from giving your life to Christ. I hope you see in this passage, friend, that Jesus shares that hatred. He doesn't like it any more than you do. Matter of fact, he hates it worse than you do. The hypocrisy of Christian leaders or churches, though, friend, does not negate the reality and the beauty of the gospel. He still means for you and me to live and love for his glory and your good and your neighbor's good. And so he wants you to still turn to him and trust him and follow him. But let's take a little more time to look at Jesus' disdain for hypocrisy by checking out these lawyers. Second point, again, the big idea, don't be fooled by loveless, heartless, fake, false, foolish Christianity. Take a look at verse 45. This is the lawyer's. One of the lawyers answered him, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. I love this, right? The lawyers are like, hey, wait a minute. You, if you insult them, we're kind of with them, and so you're insulting us. And Jesus is like, you darn skippy, right? That's what comes next. And he said, woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with you. You load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you. For you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. For they killed them and you built their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute. So that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. And as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things. Wanting to learn? Wanting to grow? Verse 54, no. Lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. These lawyers, guys, are not like lawyers today. These guys are focused on the law of Moses. 
right? The law is Moses. So instead of focusing on case law, these guys are supposed to be focused on the Bible, especially those first five books of the Bible. Except the reality is, though, they didn't focus really on the Bible. They knew enough of the Bible to be dangerous, but their focus, it seems to be, was more on those things that ticked the Pharisees off, the washing of the hands, those extra things, those traditions of men. These lawyers are more focused on those things. So these lawyers are basically unbelieving, unconverted, fundamentalistic pastors. Sort of what these guys are like. Jesus gives these guys three woes as well. Verse 46, Woe to you lawyers, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. So two things he said there. They are doing what the Pharisees were doing by placing heavier burdens on the people more so than the law intended to impart. By him adding, by their adding the traditions of men, things they're trying to bind the conscience with things that God never intended to bind the conscience with. In other words, and then other words, also the second thing that he says is, is once you do that, you, you give more burdens to the people. And then secondly, when you burden those people down, you don't even help them. You don't get down in their lives and try to help them once you've burdened them so much. Then the second woe, verse 47, they build tombs of the prophets whom their fathers killed. So the story of the Old Testament is basically God gives the Old Testament Israelites every spiritual blessing and what they do is they, most of them do, is they take that spiritual blessing and they begin to run after other idols and then expect God to still bless them. That's the story of the Old Testament. God, though, would show his steadfast love for, his Israel, for the Israelites, for his people, by sending them prophets. Guys like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Malachi and Zechariah, as we studied not long ago. Sending these guys to call them to repent, to turn around, to come back. And all the Israelites did was hate on those dudes. Hate on them. And Jesus says these lawyers are on the same team as those guys. Same team as them. Hating on the prophets. As a matter of fact, that reference in verse 51 from Abel to Zechariah, that's a reference to the entire corpus of Scripture from the, in the Old Testament. Remember, guys, sometimes this is easy to forget. Jesus didn't speak English. He's not saying from A to Z. Right? What he's saying there is exactly what we considered last week. Abel is Genesis 4. Zechariah is in reference to a priest that was killed in 2 Chronicles 24. Remember we said last week, what's the last book of the Hebrew Bible? Remember I said that Jesus' Bible, Chronicles, was his last book? That's how I got that. Jesus is saying that from Genesis to Chronicles, from the beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the Old Testament, which, by the way, that shows you where his canon closed. There was no Apocrypha. From, the, from Genesis to Chronicles, Jesus is saying, you guys are just like these guys. You're on the same team as all that Old Testament Scripture. He said, you lawyers are on the same team as the guys that killed the prophets from Genesis to Chronicles. And so it is going to be required of this generation. And that means judgment's going to come. The boom's going to come on these guys. Third woe, verse 52. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. Remember, I asked that at the beginning of the sermon. Yet you did not answer your enter, you did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. That language of entering means they never got into the truth of the law. They never entered into it. To use 21st century evangelical language, they were never saved. And they made it harder for people to get saved. Or another way of saying that. They were teaching about the love of Christ, kind of, really teaching about the love of man, but they never knew the love of Christ. They never got into it themselves. They never were saved in themselves. And then they made it harder for other people to know the love of Christ. And Jesus then calls, he says, this ministry is a ministry of taking away the key of knowledge. Remember, knowing oftentimes in the Bible is not just head knowledge, information. Knowing in the Bible is oftentimes referring to this intimacy. Right? We can think Genesis 4. Adam knew his wife and they had a son. Right? Intimacy. So these guys took away the key of getting into the intimacy with God by not knowing God, by not trusting God, treasuring God, treasuring His Word. And then they made it harder for other people to do the same. These guys, these lawyers, were like toxic waste. 
Every time they touched the word of God, if they touched it at all, they made things worse for everybody, including themselves. So what was supposed to point to life, they took it and made it their job to point people to death. These guys are analogous to getting a little bit of medical training and then wearing coats like doctors. And instead of going around healing people, helping people, they're using their medical training to kill people. You can see what these guys are like by those last two verses. Jesus rebukes them, and not only do they not repent, they want to trap him. They try and figure out new ways to trap him. In the name of God, these guys hate God and his people. They are self-deceived and they're actively deceiving others. I wonder, friend, if you know what the number one concern of the New Testament authors are. What's the biggest concern in the New Testament for the church? Well, friend, you can find it in all of their letters. The biggest concern for the apostles in the New Testament was deception. People that take the truth of God and twist it from Christ and his kingdom for their own purposes. That was their biggest concern. You can hear it, for instance, in Paul's final word with those Ephesian elders that he spent so much time with in Acts 20. He's so concerned about deception inside the church. He says in Acts 20, 28 to 30, pay careful attention to yourselves. In other words, make sure you've entered in. And to all the flock, make sure they've entered in. In which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care. That is to say, to give them the key of knowledge, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And listen to what he says. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. Why? To draw away the disciples after them. Exactly what the lawyers are doing. I wonder how many religion professors at universities or pastors have done this. With Bibles open, they twist and contort the scriptures to fit their own worldview, not God's. Drawing people away from the love of Christ. Now, to be clear, God's love is more powerful. But how many pastors this morning, right now, are not helping people in their burdens by their teaching ministry and their lives, making it harder and harder for people to come to Jesus to relieve their burdens? How many unconverted pastors are preaching lies this morning in the name of God? Making people's lives worse as a result of their ministries. We can think about prosperity teachers that tell poor couples that have given what little money they had to the church to make their life better, but they get news of cancer. They show up at the church to talk to the pastor, and the pastor tells them, you need to give more money. You haven't had enough faith. That's destructive. Or we can think about teachers, pastors, leaders that call evil good and good evil. Teachers that refuse to teach the hard text and instead tickle the ears of their listeners, entertaining them, not discipling them. How many teachers are conforming? They are conforming to the patterns of this world and they're not being transformed by the renewal of their mind. How many times does that happen? How many teachers of the Bible have used God's good design of gender roles to demean and devalue women, giving fuel to slothful and cowardly men to order their wives and children around as if they were the kings of their homes instead of teaching that they're servants. How many teachers of the Bible have confused people today by telling them that Jesus endorsed either the Democratic or the Republican Party platforms? How many pastors or Christian ministry leaders with Bibles open are not converted to Christ and are leading people away from Christ either by affirming people in their sin or treading upon people with tender consciences and that feel burdened by their sin? And then to make it all worse, they don't even help them. They don't get in their lives and try to love them. How many? The number is more than we could count. That's the bad news. The good news is there's a lot of good pastors out there. They just oftentimes don't make the headlines because they're so working so hard to love their churches. 
The reality is, friends, Jesus hates that kind of hypocritical Christian leadership. He hates it. Not only because it lies about God, but also because it lies about the gospel. Listen to this. The reason why Jesus hates hypocrisy, especially amongst Christian leadership, is not only because it lies about who God is and what he demands of the world, he also hates it because it spits on the heart of his work. Think about it. Jesus is the good shepherd that lays his life down for the sheep. That's his whole ministry. Not only did Jesus not leave heavier burdens on his children more so, the whole point of his coming was to relieve burdens. He was honest, Jesus was, about the standard of God. He never shied away from the hard teachings that pastors either today explain away or fail to explain to their people in the first place. And yet when it became evident as he taught, like on the Sermon on the Mount, when it just kept getting harder and harder and harder and harder and we became more and more aware of our sin, what did Jesus do? He commands us, cast all of your cares on me. Cast them on me. Isn't that what he said? Come to me, you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. That's his whole ministry. That's the whole point of his coming. The ministry of these Pharisees and the lawyers directly opposed the ministry of Christ and his gospel. They lied about the standard of God, deceitfully increasing the already heavy burden of our sin. And then they kept people from coming to Jesus, the one that would relieve them of their burdens, so much so that they were willing to kill him. That's why Jesus calls it the key of knowledge. They were hindering people from entering into the heart of the gospel. Jesus came to give the key of knowledge. He was the only one that could. He freely entered into a dark and sinful world. He did not hinder people from coming to God. He was God and came to them. They, those Pharisees and those lawyers, they didn't touch, Jesus said, they didn't touch the people they burdened. And yet on the other hand, Jesus, he touched the leper. He touched the demon-possessed man, legion. He touched the repentant prostitutes. He touched the bleeding woman. He touched Jairus' dead daughter. He touched the penalty for my sin and your sin on the cross. He touched death so that all of us that trust in his death might be relieved of the burden of our fear of death. Isn't that what the Bible teaches? God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He took our burden of sin away. His resurrection becomes our resurrection. And now he goes to prepare a place for us that where he is there we might be with him. And then we might finally get to touch him who first touched us. Oh, beloved, cast your burdens on him. Cast your burdens on him. He will take them and give you rest. If you are scarred by the kind of Pharisees or lawyers today, if you're scarred by foolish or fake religion, oh, beloved, go to Jesus. He will relieve you of your burdens. That's why he came. That's why he loathes the ministry of foolish, fake, or false teachers of his word. They want to take from you the love uh, of themselves. They want to have you love them. Jesus came that you might come to love him in the sense that he is willing to give his life down so that that, might be, that relationship might be entered into. You would both love each other and intimacy would come. Right? He is the definition of justice. And yet at the same time, he's willing to take our sin from us on the cross when he did not have to, but he freely entered it. You and I, friends, have had too many people in our lives that made our lives harder and never touched the pain they caused. Jesus is the opposite. He is true knowledge. He is the key to knowledge. He enters into the truth and touches us. Peter tells us, right? The Apostle Peter tells us, cast all our burdens, anxieties on Him. Why? Because He cares for you. And he shows that by entering into pain and suffering, relieving us of our heaviest burdens, that we might be home with Him in heaven. And friend, this is my story. This is my testimony. 
I grew up in the church. Thanks be to God. It's Mother's Day. Mom, I love you. Thank you for teaching me the Bible. It wasn't your fault. It was mine. I often took those truths and I didn't understand them. I used God much like these Pharisees did. They were just a trick to get what I wanted. Every time that I would sin, I can remember vividly. Every time I would sin, I would do something wrong that I knew was wrong. And I would go read the Bible. I would do something religious and think that would sort of pay it off and then God would be good to me. And friend, what I found was is that fame and baseball, for instance, could never relieve me of my burdens. The perfect job never relieved me of my deepest burdens. Sex could not relieve me of my deepest burdens. Money could not relieve me of my deepest burdens. Jesus is the only one that could. And when I understood that at the age of 19, I leapt. I don't need so much of other things because here's what, Jesus took the burden of my sin away freely on the cross and in the resurrection. And so now, instead of trying to do stuff to pay off my sin, I can go straight to him and I know he'll love me and forgive me. That's love, that's freedom, that's joy, that's true religion. And from that, how could I not love my neighbor? So friends, find healthy pastors. Find healthy churches uh, that will love you with the truth of God's word and enter into it with you. Point you to the one Jesus. Point you to the key of knowledge, Jesus the Christ. Don't be fooled by fake or foolish Christianity. Find those churches that love God and love neighbor and will help you home to heaven. And then you go and help them. And eventually, friend, we'll get home. And there will be no more hypocrisy. And there will be no more fake, foolish Christianity. It'll all be true. And we'll get to finally touch him again who first touched us. Let's pray together. Lord God, we lament the reality of false teachers in the world. The kind of Pharisees and lawyers that still persist. Even Christians that do this. Ministry leaders of sorts. God, we pray that you would rid the world of such things. We pray most notably you would do that because you would return. God, we thank you for good, healthy churches where pastors and leaders and members are loving each other with the truth of the word even when it's hard. Thank you, God, for the ways in which that relieves burdens. But God, thank you most of all for Jesus the Christ, the true key to knowledge, the one that taught the truth, that entered into the truth and never burdened those of whom he spoke to, but instead relieve their burdens by taking them to the cross. Thank you for Jesus, our good shepherd, that says, cast your burdens on me. May we live in his rest today and be thankful for the truth. We pray this in his name. Amen.